My name is Art, by the way. I'm one of the elders here and one of the teachers. Um, thank you. <laughs> uh, I want to read the passage for the morning. It's um, Mark 8, 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever ever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and profit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure as you heard me read that, you know that this is, doesn't have much possibility of being a feel-good message for Mother's Day. It's uh, pretty straightforward, pretty heavy. And at this point in the Gospel of Mark, we're two and a half years into the three and a half year ministry of Jesus. He's, he's just traveled 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee with his men to the, to the headwaters of the Jordan River, which is the very outskirts of, of uh, Israel's territory, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And if you look at this map up here, Caesarea Philippi is up in the right-hand corner. If you come down that little body waters, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River coming down, Dead Sea toward the bottom. And if you just look to the middle bottom, you see the city of Jerusalem. So they're about 125 miles from Jerusalem right now. And here he's going to teach them three things. Here's who I am. Here's what I must do. And here's what it means to follow me. So first, here's who I am. The entire area around Caesarea Philippi um, had consistently teemed with, with mythology and idolatry. Uh, in Old Testament times, Baal worship uh, had enticed the Israelites to abandon God, uh, and as a result, they went into captivity for that idolatry. In Greek times, the cult of Pan, P-A-N, dominated. Pan was the god of nature, um, livestock hunting, everything that had to do with wild times, party music, and of course fertility. And he was that, that crazy looking guy with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. He looked like this. Uh, you know, something you really want to bow down and worship, right? It's really, really enticing. Um, and in Roman times then, moving on from Greek times to Roman times, it became a hotbed of Caesar worship with its elaborate temple and surrounded buildings. And this is the artist's representation, of course, but this is what Jesus and his men probably would have seen when they got up towards Caesarea Philippi. Plus, around there, there were ruins of the pan worship. So it's in this place, with both ancient 
and more current visible trappings of paganism impossible to miss, Jesus poses the most important question that can be asked of a disciple. Now, we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark uh, entitled The Good Life. And if you're looking for possibly the clearest portrayal of that good life, you need look no further than this. This is it. But I warn you, to unbelieving or doubting ears of any civilization or any generation, it sounds like the worst life. Jesus begins by asking his men, who do people say that I am? And they're pretty clear. Well, Lord, they think you're a prophet, kind of like Elijah or Jeremiah or, or J.B. That's what the friends of John the Baptist called him. Um, but Jesus is not looking for information at this point. He's, he's looking to show the huge difference between the answer he knew that he would get to this question from his men and the answer that he prayed he would get from his men to the next question. So very quickly, he asks the next question. But who do you say that I am? And I want to ask the disciples someday, what was it like at that moment? Uh, did you guys all just sort of stare down at, at your dirty sandaled feet? Did you, did you, did you mumble among, your, among yourselves wondering what the answer was? Or did you think, well, if we're just quiet, Peter's probably going to say something. And then you could say, yeah, what he said. Yeah. Um, and as you know, Peter said something. He said, you're the Christ. And he was absolutely right. But that's not Jesus' name. That's his title, meaning the anointed one or the Messiah. And Messiah expectation was all the rage during the time of Jesus. In fact, many other men had appeared claiming to be Messiah. In fact, one author actually says there were 37 others in the time of Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah. See, between the Old and the New Testament, books had flooded the market describing what it would be like when that promised one, that Messiah, would come and restore the glory days of David. He would, he would be introduced by a forerunner like Elijah. Uh, he'd drive out the hostile powers like Rome. He would totally renovate Jerusalem. He'd bring back all the Jews who had been scattered all over the place. And he would introduce an eternal age of peace and goodness. And to a lot of people, it sure looked like Jesus might be that guy. Now, Peter hasn't seen any of that Messiah-like behavior from Jesus yet. But he's undoubtedly, like the rest of the common Jews, anticipating it. And Jesus knows that. So he immediately moves from here's who I am, you're right, Peter, I am the Messiah, to here's what I must do. He must be thinking, you are absolutely right, Peter, I am the Messiah, but you're absolutely wrong about what I'm here to do. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So no wonder the very next words are, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, Jesus' words here are sort of the original shock and awe. And Peter is scandalized. So he sort of self-appoints himself as counselor to, to Jesus to straighten him out and, and try to save God's plan here. Matthew actually gives Peter's words. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Another translation of Matthew says, 
May God be merciful to you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, you know, in today's vernacular, that's sort of like, you've got to be kidding me. What are you thinking, Lord? Didn't you hear me? I just said that you're the Messiah. And that's not what Messiahs do. They don't get themselves killed. Peter couldn't imagine a dead Messiah driving out the Romans and bringing the new Jewish nation back to the days of David. Peter gets the title right. He's got the mission wrong. One commentator wrote this. Not only does Jesus' identity include his eventual death and resurrection, it will finally be defined by these things. Jesus will not wield power over others. Others will wield power over him. But of course, only for a time. And the impression here is that that Jesus cuts Peter off in mid-dialogue with a rebuke that I'm I'm telling you, it, it must have chiseled a deep gouge in Peter's soul. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. John Calvin wrote this, These are the sharpest words from Jesus that he ever spoke to a loving heart. He was not given to tell out faults in public, but he hears in Peter's voice the tone of that other voice which in the wilderness had suggested the same temptation to escape the cross and win the crown by worshiping the devil. Jesus was a man, and the things that be of men found a response in his sinless nature. It shrank from pain and the cross with innocent and inevitable shrinking. Think Garden of Gethsemane. Does not the very severity of the rebuke testify to its having set some chords vibrating in his soul? Another man writes this. Peter was a stumbling block to him, although he stumbled not. Jesus, let us repeat it again and again, endured not like a stoic, deadening the natural impulses of humanity. Whatever outraged his tender and perfect nature was not less dreadful to him than it is to us. It was much more so because his sensibilities were unblunted and exquisitely strung. At every thought of what lay before him, his soul shuddered like a rudely touched instrument of most delicate structure. And it was necessary that he should throw back the temptation with indignation and even vehemence. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One moment, Peter's a blessing. The next moment, he's a barrier. One moment, the voice of God is speaking through him, speaking the things of God. And the next moment, the voice of Satan is speaking through him, speaking the things of man. Is that sad? Do you know what it does? It it shows how possible it is to have some right information about Jesus and still be terribly wrong. And how's that happen? For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's like Jesus is saying, Peter, you're all about the niceties your humanity desperately desires, like drive out the Romans. God is all about the necessities your your humanity desperately requires. 
the death of a savior. And then sort of using that as a theological and emotional launch pad, Jesus gives possibly the most razor sharp, no holds barred description of what it means to be his disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the Jews and the disciples were looking for immediate glory. Jesus says, not yet. Oh, it'll come. But there's a step between here and there. And it's death. And it's non-negotiable. Did you pick up on one word earlier when he talked about his rejection and death? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. Not should or he might or actually will, but must because God doesn't do anything spur the moment-ish. Everything happens according to his wise and his irreversible and his actually set in concrete, not wet concrete, set in concrete plan. Even the murder of his son, Acts 4. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both, number one, Herod, number two, Pontius Pilate, along with number three, the Gentiles, and number four, the peoples of Israel, and then catch this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's the definition of must. Even who? Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews. And all of that has everything to do with the third point that I want to talk about this morning. Here's what it means for us to follow Jesus. It's, it's like Jesus is saying, since this is going to mean death for me, it will mean death for you as well. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the, so the circle has widened. This is not just for the twelve. This is for anybody and everybody who wants to follow Jesus. And there you have it. Crystal clarity on what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, just a heads up as we go on this morning. This passage is so tightly woven together that as we focus on deny yourself and take up your cross, we'll also touch on the other pieces of the passage that, that come after that that we've read. So, deny yourself. <clears throat> now, there's a politically correct phrase for our age. Throw that one out and you'll have an instantaneous cross to bear. You might even catch flack if you said it to some of us in this room. But Jesus and the Bible are sometimes so nakedly categorical. Do you want to follow me? Deny yourself and put the cross on your shoulder. No ifs or buts or conditions. Now, here's, here's my concern when we hear that. This, this is what I've done in the past. Deny yourself and take up your cross. I'm bent toward a, uh, a protective narrow-mindedness at this point. And I think, well, 
that's, that's a click or two off from applying to me because I'm probably never going to be faced with the choice of deny Jesus or die. Where I live is just not martyrdom territory. Now, I don't know what you think about martyrdom. It's so easy to ignore it since we can't and most likely won't ever identify with it personally. But in reality, that's what this passage is all about. Uh, during a recent seminary graduation in a non-Western country, several graduates got together and dramatized the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr uh, recorded in Acts chapter 7 in the book of Acts. And at the conclusion, they all with one voice pledged to remain faithful to God when threatened with martyrdom. Even though they knew that a number of them would most likely be killed. They would be killed for their refusal to submit to anyone or anything but Jesus and his word. You see, martyrs throughout the history of the church, including today, by the way, May 12, 2019, uh, there are going to be a number of people today in this 24 hours killed because they will stand for Jesus only and take what happens. See, they choose Jesus and his words, and martyrdom is just the result. These, these men and women have not and do not go out looking for martyrdom. Now, some have in the past, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that, but most do not. It comes because of what they stand for and how they live. I think martyrdom as literal death misses the point. It may come, it may not. The point is, surrender your life to Jesus, and what comes, comes. Gerald Sitzer, who, who told the story of this graduation, says this, their story does not make me want to uh, die a martyr's death. It's, it's too gruesome and horrible for that. But it does make me want to live a martyr's life. And that, I think, is the heart of this passage. Simply and literally, say no to yourself. Say no to everything that demands a yes to God. Remember Peter's problem, according to Jesus. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're just setting your mind on the, on the things of man. I just have to tell you this story. Um, I got up this morning early, and I was, went into my study at 6 o'clock. <clears throat> and I was looking for a book to... Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm pretty OCD about this. I get a little book here to come under my notebook here of, of notes so that it's at the right level for me. You know, it's kind of an OCD thing, although it's, it's, it's the glasses. It's not me, really. Um, but so I was looking for a book, and I, I pulled one off the shelf, and the first one was The Mystery of God's Providence. But it wasn't quite the right size, so I put it down. And that, that's, that's one out of about 2,000 books. And I went I put the second one out of about 2,000 books, and it was... This little book, Primitive Piety Revived, it's probably on your shelves too. <laughs> it's by uh, Henry Fish, a 19th century uh, Baptist preacher in New Jersey. Um, and I, I picked up the book and I thought, well, I, man, I haven't looked at that book for a long time. So I just kind of took it and I opened it. And I looked down at the first page I opened it to and it said, 
self-denial. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. What's going on here, Lord? And then I thought, the first book I had was The Mystery of God's Providence. Then the next one I pick up is exactly what I'm preaching about this morning. The page I open to it is exactly what I'm preaching about this morning. And I'm thinking, okay, i got to spend some time reading this chapter this morning. And I, and I did. And it's just, it's incredible how God works at, at times like this. It's almost miraculous. Here's what he says. A definition for self-denial. It's the subjection of our personal ease and tastes and conveniences, our comforts and time and possessions to the will of Christ for his glory and for human good. It means to shift the center of gravity from concern for ourselves to abandonment to the will of God, whatever that is. You guys remember, some of you that have been around here for a while, I don't know how many years ago this was, Joel, two, three years ago, when we uh, taught the catechism. Question one was, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Almost 500 years ago, John Calvin wrote this. If we then are not our own, but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee and whither we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. So, Insofar as we can, let us forget about ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us, therefore, live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will, therefore, rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he is not his own, has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it to God. For as consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. And to that, our world says, yeah, right. And I, I know you know this, but um, he, he doesn't mean deny yourself something like chocolate, coffee, going to the beach. Uh, you fill in the blank. It's, it's to deny yourself is to, to, to surrender the ownership of your life to him, and he becomes the director of your life. And he may say, no coffee, no beach. Back to this one again this morning. He says, how is this self-denial to be exercised? Not in rejecting the lawful use of God's creatures, not in reducing oneself to voluntary and comfortless poverty, not in burying oneself in retirement and macerating the body and wasting the energies in idle contemplations and dreamy raptures, not in being careless of life and health and property, but in renouncing such pleasures, profits, comforts, connections, or practices as God commands us to renounce and to the extent 
to which he commands it. So it's not something we figure out to do. It's something that he lays on our heart and he, and he, and he calls us to. It's really Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, how do you do that? Um, I've really been helped by uh, John Piper here. Uh, just think about the words, deny yourself. There are two selves there. There's a denied self, and there's a denying self. Those of us who are believers talk to ourselves. The denying self is the Galatians 2 self. I just read about that's the new self. That's the new man. That's the, that's the Jesus living in you by means of the Spirit. The other self, and it really doesn't matter to me what you call it at this point, whether it's the old self or the old man or the flesh, is the one who wants everything that you can get from this life, whether it's possessions or power or prestige or acceptance or, or comfort or, or you name it, even though it means choosing yourself over God. And even though there's a 100% chance that you're going to lose it all anyhow. That part of you just wants to grab it anyhow. And we all battle this in one way or another. Every one of us in this room. It's simply the nature of being, like Jesus said, in the world, but not of the world. Now, as, as Henry Fish said, what I just read, it, it, it doesn't mean pursuing a life of victimization. It, it doesn't mean manufacturing suffering. It doesn't mean fabricating crosses. It doesn't mean being an obnoxious Christian to be able to say we're denying ourselves and carrying a cross because our obnoxiousness has brought down scorn or ridicule on our heads. We've had just about enough of that through the history of the church. Frankly, if we incarnate Calvin's words, we are gods, let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods, let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods, let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. If, if we live that way, we'll have enough self-denial, we'll have enough cross-bearing, we'll have enough losing our life to save it. We'll have enough opportunities to shun the world, to save our souls. We'll, we'll have enough opportunities to not be ashamed of Jesus in this real life. We'll have enough of those opportunities to not have to force fit any of it into our lives. It'll be there. We are called simply to deny our ways and desires when the Spirit prompts us and to shoulder the cross when it lies right in front of us. And frankly, if, if we desire, and, and I'm assuming you do, like I do, if, if we really desire to walk in the Spirit and not the flesh, we know when God is asking us to deny ourselves, don't we? We know. I mean, we know when there is an opportunity to stand for Jesus and as a result, bear affliction or rejection or, or belittlement or shunning of some kind. We know, don't we?
And don't miss the clarity at the end of the passage. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those are dreadful words. Jesus is saying that to not deny ourselves, to not take up our cross, to not lose our life, to save it, to prefer the world, to, to be ashamed of him will catch up with us on the last day. Matthew Henry writes, they shall not share with Christ in his glory then that we're not willing to share with him in his disgrace now. Now listen to me carefully. Please listen to me carefully. That doesn't mean that one instance of being ashamed of Jesus disqualifies us as his people. We'll never reach 100% new man behavior in this world, the side of heaven. I'm pretty sure Peter's going to be in heaven. He was so ashamed of Jesus that at a life and death moment for his Lord, he denied his Lord three times in lieu of denying himself and in lieu of picking up his cross at that moment. But Peter repented. And Jesus forgave. See, our God is a God of, he's he's got demands, right? I mean, this is tough stuff. But our God is a God of the second chance, of the third chance, of the 89th chance, of the 221st chance. He is a gracious, he is a loving, he is a long-suffering and he is a forgiving God. And if you belong to him, that's what's true about you. But Matthew Henry again, although he will forgive us when we repent for not denying ourselves, taking up our cross and being ashamed of him, catch these words, persistently refusing to be identified with Jesus eventually indicates that we are not truly his disciples. In other words, if we live a life of not denying ourselves, not taking up our cross, and being ashamed of Jesus, it tells us who we are and who we are not. So the issue is, isn't it, where's our heart? What are your deepest desires? What what are your deepest desires in spite of your failures? What do you truly know about yourself? And only you and God are privy to that. I'm not going to give any personal illustrations this morning because I'm afraid you would try to filter your your response to that through my own illustration, and that's, that's not the deal. It's you and God. Only you know, and God knows what your heart is. See, I think it all goes back to Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ, we are no longer who by nature we used to be. We used to think only about the things of man. But everything's changed now. 
And now the things of God take priority. It's Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, boy, this is, this is great, then you also will appear with him in glory. And he will not be ashamed of you at that point. You see, Self-denial, cross-bearing, is not the total ruination of self, but the complete re-identification of self. Remember, what is your only hope in life and death? That you're not your own. But we belong, body and soul, life and, in life and death, to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who follow Jesus have a radically new identity and a top-to-bottom inside-out new way of living. So, I, I, have to, I have to ask you this morning, in the midst of your Caesarea Philippi, with its mammoth array of, array of God choices, right? Having stuff, being in control, uh, being accepted, uh, attaining a title or a position, looking good, pursuing pleasure, chasing personal comfort, tolerance, cynicism, striving for over-the-top financial security, with, with all of that and more just reaching out to grab our hearts in the midst of our adulterous and sinful generation, I have to ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? And it's okay to have a title, but what content do you fill that title with? Do you say, uh, my Lord, even when he tells you to do something or not do something that you don't agree with? My Savior, even when he wants, you to, he wants to save you from something that you'd rather not be saved from? My guide, even when he wants to lead you someplace you don't want to go? My light of the world, even when he shines light on an area of your life that you want to keep in the darkness? my bread of life, even when he wants to feed you something in place of what you really think you want, my rock, even when you'd much rather build something on sand, my living water, even when you want your thirst slaked with something else, your source of truth, even when it's not cool to hold to and makes you look foolish, you say, he's my only way, even when that makes you sound so narrow-minded and politically incorrect and foolish? Or do you say, my God, even when you want to be your own God? See, following Jesus is, is not a haphazard voyage. It, it moves in a specific direction, ending up at crucifixion, Denying ourselves, death to ourselves, and resurrection, living with Jesus. Here's what I want to be able to say, and I want to mean it from the depth of my heart, and some days it's easy, and some days it's a battle. I want to be able to say to him, you are the one who carried the cross of death so I could live. I now want to carry 
my cross of death to self so you can live your life through me. And I can only say that knowing that I cannot pull that off by sheer willpower. I've, I've got a pretty good amount of willpower. Ask the people who know me. I can't do this. And you can't either. Only by saying, but Lord, I want to do that, but I can't, but you can. I trust you, Lord Jesus, to do that in me, then to work it through me, because it's a process, and you're doing it for me, because I can't do it myself. I just can't do it. And I would end by saying, you are my only hope. My only hope. I want to close by reading a, a prayer of Thomas Brooks, who was a 17th century English Puritan preacher. Lord, here am I. Do with me what thou pleasest. Write upon me as thou pleasest. I give up myself to be at thy dispose. The ambitious man giveth himself up to his honors, but I give up myself unto thee. Man gives himself up to his pleasures, but I give myself up to thee. Man gives himself up to his idols, but I give myself to thee. Lord, lay what burden thou wilt upon me, only let thy everlasting arms be under me. I am lain down in thy will. I have learned to say amen to thy amen. Thou hast a greater interest in me than I have in myself. And therefore I give up myself unto thee and am willing to be at thy disposal and am ready to receive what impression thou shalt stamp upon me. O blessed Lord, hast thou not again and again said unto me, I am thine, O soul, to save thee? My mercy is thine to pardon thee. My blood is thine to cleanse thee. My merits are thine to justify thee. My righteousness is thine to clothe thee. My spirit is thine to lead thee. My grace is thine to enrich thee. And my glory is thine to reward thee. And therefore I cannot but make a surrender of myself unto thee. Lord, here I am. Do with me as seemeth good in thine own eyes. I know the best way is to yield myself to thy will and to say amen to thy amen. While the worship team and the communion servers get in place, I want to invite you to bow before God and to talk honestly with him about what you are thinking and feeling right now as a result of this very defining passage. And I want to give you a minute or two for you to do this. Please, please take this seriously. It's it's so easy to walk out of here and you get on with life and you, you just, it just goes. Um, talk to God, would you? Close your eyes, bow your heads, get rid of distractions, and just talk to God about what you're thinking and feeling right now.
Lord, please hear and respond to the, the many thoughts and the many prayers that have risen from this place in the last minute or so. Would you meet each of us the way you know we need to be met? For your glory and for our spiritual and eternal good. In the name of your son, I pray. Amen. The message of this table that we're about to come to is this. It's Jesus, I think, saying, I gave my life for you. Now let me live my life through you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have come to know him personally as your Savior, this table is for you this morning, and we invite you to come. Um, if this is a morning where maybe you are, you are saying to God, I want to be your child. I, I wasn't when I walked in. I want to be when I walk out. I want my sins forgiven. I, I want to be yours. Um, if you're doing that, this table is for you. If you're still struggling with that and thinking about that, I ask you to just continue to remain in your seat and struggle about it because that's an eternal decision that you are dealing with. It, it, it's not just for tomorrow and next week, and it, it's forever. So, come.